Good morning. I add my greeting to Tim's from earlier in the service. My name is Nick, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. We continue our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. God's holy word, then I'll pray, and then I'll invite you to be seated. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Be seated. Blessed is the man, O Lord, who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in your commandments. So plant us by streams of living water this morning, that we may drink deeply from the endless well of Jesus Christ. Let us deeply delight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Before I moved back to Utah from Colorado about a decade and a half ago, I spent two years as an assistant basketball coach at a small college. And one of my chief responsibilities was recruiting new players to come and join the team in subsequent years. And there was one player who was an absolute conundrum to me. He was uh, decent sized for his position as a guard. He had fairly good statistics, but his body movements were so strange, to put it mildly. He almost fell over. Every time he moved, he could, he could be running, walking, defending. It just looked like he was about to fall over all the time. And so I'm watching film on this guy, and I decided I'm just going to call his coach and see what's up. So I call his coach. I say, Coach, what is the deal? And he said, Nick, you just have to come watch him play in person. You just have to put the film away, book a flight, and come watch him. And I guarantee you, you'll want him on your team. So I booked the flight. I went and watched him play, and sure enough, he came and became part of the team the very next year. Watching him up close settled the matter. That story got me thinking, or or this text got me thinking about that story this week. The The way that player played spoke for itself. And the way the Thessalonians are living their life after being elected by God speaks for itself. If you were here last week, you may be reminded that we were circling two major themes that chapter one is about. The first one is that Paul is giving thanks to God for these believers in Thessalonica. And the second is that Paul is providing the church assurance of their salvation. Timothy likely brought a report back to Paul. They were wrestling with assurance of salvation, and Paul is still pointing to their exemplary life. In fact, that's our first point for today the church's exemplary life is on display. The second thing we'll look at is their commitment to evangelism. And the third thing we'll look at is their conversion led to hopeful 
expectation. So let's start with an exemplary life. Paul states that he and those who are with him, Silas and Timothy, proves to be the right kind of men. Leaders in God's church have specific qualities about them. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 5 are kind of the heavy hitters to give us some qualities of elders, particularly in the church. But within the context of 1 Thessalonians, we have Paul here saying that not so much biblical qualifications, we, we have those in other places. What he has in mind here is they have lived the Christian life in the midst of affliction. And they have lived that life well. When this young church was planted, the town revolted against Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were thrown in jail, and some other believers were also thrown in jail. Eventually, they were ran out of this, the town, persecuted in the next town. But we learn from other letters that Paul was stoned. Learn that in Acts, actually. That he was stoned and left for dead. That he received, on multiple occasions, 40 lashes minus one which would also lead to some people dying. He was hungry. He was tired. He was burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself, 2 Corinthians 1 tells us. He not only learned contentment in that affliction, much affliction in various ways, he also learned that his strength does not come within himself. We need to remember that. Because everywhere we go today in the world, we hear, find strength from within. Friends, don't find strength from within, find strength from without, namely from the Lord Jesus Christ, whose burden is easy and whose yoke is light. Paul learned that his strength came without, and he could rejoice with joy and thanksgiving in any affliction, knowing that through it, the gospel could be advanced. That's the kind of imitating that Paul has in mind here. So he says that you knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. They became imitators in that same context, in the context of much affliction. You received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Friends, when the word is received in faith, and with the joy that the Holy Spirit gives to us, it doesn't matter how much affliction there is or how much affluence we have or anything else. We have everything we need to live a life that reflects the gospel, the gift of faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to read from Romans 5 earlier in our service. Tim did a great job emphasizing some beautiful aspects of this text. We've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, which is reason to rejoice. And we all kind of want to stop there. Let's just stop reading. Let's just stop reading verse 2. But we can't. Because not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces care or endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. James 1. Even our affliction. Friends, Paul has no health and wealth gospel. Paul's gospel is one to be received no matter how hard life is, no matter how, stru- how many struggles we go through and how deep the afflictions are. The joy of our salvation and the hope of its consummation is worth the price of all earthly affliction. There's no health and wealth gospel anywhere in the Bible. In other words, to say in a sentence, Paul practices what he preaches. And I want you to think about how important that is for a pastor, for an elder, and for Paul an apostle. It's one thing to get up and preach. It's another thing to live what we preach. It's one thing to teach what the Bible says or to tell you good things about the gospel. It's one thing to tell you what Jesus commanded and expects. It's another thing entirely to live it. Not many of you, writes James, should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think he has in mind there not just the teaching, but also the living that corresponds with the teaching. This is what Paul, Silas, and Timothy did, and this is what the Thessalonian church does too. They imitated Paul and his fellow workers. They didn't receive the word, merely receive the word with much affliction and joy, but they became an example. Verse seven, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, I know you don't have a map in front of you. Macedonia is the northern part of what we know as Greece today, and Achaia is the southern part of what we know as Greece today. And I didn't look at a landmass comparison, but since we live in Utah, it's like saying all of the believers in northern Utah see you as an example, and all of the believers all the way down to southern Utah see you as an example. This was possible pragmatically because Thessalonica was in a port city, as we talked about the first week, but it was also right on that great Roman road that connected the Roman Empire. So the gospel could uniquely go forth from this city quickly and efficiently. So they were able to send messengers. They were able to travel quickly. And they themselves became worthy of imitation. Their life was a good Example. Now, the word for example is the Greek word tupos, which has to do with a pattern or a mold. Tim and I didn't coordinate his prayer with 1 Thessalonians. Maybe he did because he was looking ahead, but he prayed that we would pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus. That's what this is getting at, that that they patterned their lives after Paul and Silas and Timothy who patterned their lives after the Lord Jesus. The thing that I thought about this week was a cookie cutter. When you're making cookies, you want to make sure that you have enough room on the pan to fit all the cookies. And sometimes, depending on the time of year, you could use a star or a Christmas tree or whatever else, but you you have a pattern. 
That's kind of what this is getting at. There's a pattern that Paul and Silas and Timothy have received, and that's from the Lord Jesus. And then we follow that same pattern. You imitated us after the Lord Jesus. Paul is commending them for having the ability to say, all of them, the whole church, follow me as I follow Christ. Just like he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the question of application that I have for each of you this morning is, is is your life a pattern to be followed? Do you have the right pattern? And then is is your life one to be patterned after? Is your life imitatable? I just made up a word. For all those who are sitting around you. But here's what I really want to emphasize this morning. Is that these people who are imitatable have been Christians for maximum one year. And Paul is commending them for their example. Folks, none of these people will be, uh, would, if they were here, would be picked for the upcoming pastoral search committee. None of these people would be considered for Sunday schools, Sunday school teachers at Grace Church. Let that fall upon you. And yet, they were so connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, they were so caught up in the power of the Holy Spirit, they had received the grace of Christ, and the whole region knows about their faith and knows about their life. And Paul writes to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, we don't even need to say anything about you because everybody already knows. That's amazing. So do not look down upon anyone in this church or who will come and say, "Mm, I've been walking with the Lord longer. Let's do it my way. That's how churches die. That's how men and women get put on pedestals. These folks lived an exemplary life in Christ because they were connected to Jesus and they lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. There isn't a single Christian in this room. There's not one person here that can say that they aren't able to live an exemplary life. If you are in Christ, you ought to be. You should live a life that is worthy of imitation because every Christian has done the same thing that these folks did. They received the word with joy and in and of the Spirit. So Paul then gives us two concrete ways that they're living a life that is worthy of imitating. And I already said it, but I want to say it again. Paul is writing to the whole church. He doesn't have a select few in mind. He's not writing to just the leaders. He's writing to everybody in the church. And so here's our second heading, which is committed to evangelism. Committed to evangelism. Look at verse 8 with me. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The two things that I referenced just a moment ago is this sounding forth and this going forth. So the word was going forth from them, the word of the Lord. So they'd received the gospel when it came to them in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit. Then they imitated Paul and his fellow missionaries, even in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. And now... 
the word of the Lord is sounding forth from them all within one year. The church was not on the sidelines when the big dogs were out fighting the fight. They entered the fight. The church didn't wait for Paul to send those with the quote-unquote gift of evangelism. They all started living. And evangelism just happened. They preached the gospel. Sure, some were sent out. Not everybody got on a... Uh, on their feet or got on a horse or something else and, and rode down to Achaia. Some did, but the church is all being held up for their commitment to evangelism. The Greek word for sounding forth has to do with an echo. The root word has to do with echo. And so the idea here is the only time it's used in the New Testament. The idea here, though, is that it's going out and coming back and going out and coming back, bouncing from mountain to mountain, from city to city, all over the place. And everybody knows. And the, and the believers are encouraged. So encouraged that they told the Apostle Paul about it. They reported that the church was sounding forth the gospel, but also, despite all the affliction, much affliction, their faith was towards God. Now, think of, think of how encouraging this would be to a group of believers who are doubting their salvation, who are wrestling with salvation. Folks, you're out there preaching the gospel. You're encouraging people that are miles and miles and miles away, so much so that they want to tell me about you. Your faith is towards God. In other words, these people heard the good news, then they preached the good news, then they lived outwardly according to the good news in front of people, just like Paul did everywhere he went. Just like Paul, they practiced what they preached. So there was a verbal aspect, the preaching of the gospel, the, the word echoing forth and coming back, but there was also a practical aspect. Their faith in front of others was towards God. Focusing on evangelism now by way of application, let me apply this individually, then corporately. Individually. How is it that you as a person view your relationship with evangelism? Would you prefer that the big dogs do it while you're on the sideline? Or do you recognize that evangelism is best done through every member of the church for the sake of those whom the Lord has placed in your life? Right? I mean... I probably interact with two dozen people out in the world throughout the week. And if you interact with two dozen people throughout the world, and there's, a, I don't know, maybe a hundred people here, you do the math, I'm pretty sure that's a hundred times more interactions with folks. And so my belief about evangelism is that it ought to be done in regular life with your neighbors, coworkers, family, friends. The professionals are probably never going to meet your coworkers, neighbors, family, or friends. But God has placed them in your life. And remember, some will be sent. Some will be called to be missionaries. Some will be called to be pastors. But all are called to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us to anybody who asks and do it with gentleness and respect that some might be saved. 
So if you have an idea of, I want to be on the sidelines and let the pastors and the elders do all the work, please, please change your mindset. You can reach infinitely more people than your pastors will ever be able to reach. Let's move also to corporate application of evangelism. It is wonderful that Christian people are moving to the area or Christian people see Grace Church as a place to grow in their faith. We also need to recognize at the same time that we have not effectively reached the lost through Grace Church. There has been very few conversions at Grace Church in the last decade. We, 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 we talked about this as an a focus area. I believe it was in 2022. The elders identified this as a focus area. We taught, we taught on it. We emphasized it. But the truth is, if we come to 385 West Golden Avenue at 1030 on Lord's Day mornings and then leave our faith there and go out and just live normal lives, not being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us to everybody who asks, then the next 10 years are going to be the same. And so if there's anything that you get from today, it's that challenge one another on how we can reach the lost. It is good that we do discipleship in the church. It is good that we have Sunday school. It is good that we do these things. But we must have a focus on the lost or else we should go and join a church that does. I've said that before. I'm not just saying it on my way out. Would you commit to praying daily, daily for the lost to be reached, that you could find the lost, that the Lord would bring them into your life, bring them to Grace Church, that we could echo and live the gospel with them, in front of them, for them. Pray, if nothing else, for the next couple of months, pray that you and this church would be more and more committed to evangelism. Let's move on to our third point, our third heading, conversion to hopeful expectation. This is verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, For they themselves report concerning this uh, concerning. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, verse 9, in the way that it's written in this particular translation is slightly uh, confusing because what Paul is really getting at here is the kind of reception uh, should be translated the kind of visitation that we had among you. It's not about the way that the church welcomed them so much as it is what Paul and Silas and Timothy were there to do. They came to visit the church for a particular purpose, and that was to share the gospel, to see people saved, and the Holy Spirit bless them through the ministry of the apostle and his workers. So it's about a visitation, not so much as a reception. The church, in other words, the other churches are reporting to Paul the fruitfulness of his ministry in Thessalonica that is now producing more and more and more fruit, right? And Paul is setting up the defense of his ministry in chapter two. 
Most of chapter two is about defending himself against accusations from those outside the church, that all you're doing is trying to get rich, that all you're doing is trying to get a following, that you are trying to put yourself on a pedestal, Paul, and he defends himself in chapter two. But then he says, he says, all the other churches tell us about how wonderful it is that you have been saved, church, Thessalonican church, that you have been called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Paul Paul told the church how the Thessalonians are known to be people who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So think about how significant this would be. This is a church who would be expected to participate in the almost daily pagan worship of idols. There would be regular festivals, regular parties that everyone in the culture were supposed to take part in. If you were here the first week, I said that there were up to 25 gods and heroes and virtues that could be worshiped in, in Thessalonica. If there was a party every time one of those gods was worshiped, they're essentially worshiping a false god together every other week. And it would be noticed that these people were not there. They turned from all of that to God. Now, we may have a tendency to say, oh man, we're not, we're not, worshiping, we're not worshiping trinkets. You know, we're not, we're not worshiping Zeus or Apollo or anybody else. So it's worth pausing for a minute and remembering what an idol is biblically. An idol is anything that we worship that we think will give us ultimate security and satisfaction. Anything that will give us ultimate security and satisfaction. Idolatry is foundational to our sin problem. We look for anything and everything to give us that ultimate security and satisfaction. We'll sacrifice for it. We'll we'll worship it until we have it and then we'll build upon it so that we can worship more. Idolatry is not something that's unique to superstitious pagans. It plagues us all. We all have things, all of us, who come from our hearts. All of us have things that we put in place of God. But these folks, these folks are commended from their turning away from the idol and turning toward God. There's a double turning. That's what this church did. They turned away from the idols and they turned toward God to serve Him, the living and true God. Now, serve is a fine translation, but I don't think it gets quite at the heart of the issue. The word for serve is the word for slave. These people were slaves to dead, worthless, non-living idols. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they became a slave to the one living and true God, the only God who will give them life when they submit themselves to him and become a slave of him. See, we're all slaves to something. We are all under bondage to something. 
or to someone. But these folks, they have turned away from the kind of slavery that leads to death and they have become slaves of the only true master who will give them eternal life. And those who are now slaves of God, like this church, they live. They live under submission to that God. They live like they belong in God's house, in God's family, in God's service. They don't go to the pagan party. They go to the house of the Lord on Sunday mornings and they worship and then they go out to 167 other hours of their week and they let the gospel shine forth through their lives. The gospel is not merely on their lips, but it's also marked by their life. So they love one another. Sacrificially, they serve one another. They together reach the lost. They build up one another. They give their lives away over and over and over again. And I think this is true for much of Western culture. I think it's especially true for American cultures that we don't have a lot of time for that anymore. We go from this thing to that thing to that other thing, and maybe somebody might need our love or our help, and if we can fit it in our calendar, we'll say yes to it, but if we can't, we'll just hope somebody else can. But that's not what this gospel living is. It's sacrificial. It's costly. We don't talk about the opportunity cost. We just jump in and do what's necessary to our own detriment. So the other churches report to Paul that this is the kind of living that the Thessalonian church was about. They've been converted through Paul's ministry and they start imitating the life that they saw him live as one who's been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But they also saw not just what the gospel does to us now, but they saw what the gospel does to our eyes. And we don't look down we look up. Look at the way that Paul writes this. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Our eyes as Christian people ought to be heavenward, ought to be expecting that great trumpet to blow and the Son of God to come from heaven to finish all that he started. Jesus now being raised from the dead is at the right hand of God on his throne and he is going to leave that throne again to establish the new heavens and the new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new garden where there's no more sin, no more wrath and no more judgment. And they expectedly waited for that. The church was being example to the other churches in life, in practice, in love, but they were also an example of expecting Christ to come and living well while we wait. In a few words, everything about this church was transformed by the gospel. They are set free from idolatry. They are then free to serve and worship God and his son who will return and make all things right. I've been reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my six-year-old son and my four-year-old son. They loved it. We just finished this week. They fell asleep several times because it was done while they were in bed. But I finished every chapter even if they were sleeping. 
One of my favorite scenes in that book and in the movie too is, is when the beavers are taking the sons of Adam and the sons of Eve to the stone table. And they're on their way and they're hiding because of the bells. They think it's the witch coming and they're hiding, but the beavers go up and check it out. And guess who's there? It's not the white witch, but it's Father Christmas. And in that moment, the thaw begins, not because of Father Father Christmas, not, not because he's around, but because Aslan is on the move. They were waiting for Aslan, not for Father Christmas. And all the snow begins to melt, and bit by bit, snowflake by snowflake, the white witch's reign starts to come out of her hands. Now, that's a good reminder of the state of things this side of the cross of Christ. Christ suffered an immense blow on the cross. But the empty tomb proves that the thaw has begun. The thaw has begun. The devil thinks he's won. But even the devil is God's devil, as Martin Luther would say. And the devil's reign will come to an end when Jesus Christ comes in glory and splendor and makes all things new. But until then, we have to remember and receive and walk in the truth and the reality of the gospel. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In the power of the Holy Spirit and depending on him for every step of the way, then we are called to imitate Paul and to imitate this church and to imitate one another as we follow Christ. But sometimes I feel like we can get into the mindset of of every city construction worker that I have ever seen when they're in a group. They've dug the hole. And there are five guys on top of the hole pointing to the one guy in the hole and say, you keep going. And I don't know if they rotate. I don't know if one of the guys, the hole's big enough for them all to get in. And yet there's one guy inside, four guys pointing at the one guy inside. We're all in this together. And we're all called to live this life together. Paul writes to the whole church, commends the whole church, reminds them of their salvation through what he sees and what the other churches see in them. Friends, brothers and sisters, don't wait for another Sunday to come. Start now. Get in the hole. The thaw is long, uh, it's come a long way. Who knows how long until Jesus comes back again, but don't wait, get in the hole together. Encourage one another, reach the lost together. And if you don't know where to start, ask. Get off the sideline, get in the field together. Your faith will be strengthened, your Your love for Christ will be deepened and others will be blessed. I promise, because it's biblical and it's exactly what Paul is commending the Thessalonian church for. Let's pray. Father, we long to apply the gospel in every moment of our lives to share our faith with those who have faith in a false God. We long to build one another up through true discipleship, to to love one another enough to come alongside each other in moments of difficulty and affliction. 
So stir this desire up more and more that we may respond to the command to make disciples in the church and outside of the church for our good and for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.